Yeah, I, I've heard some people say that it just feels more spiritual if you wait and let the spirit kind of spontaneously move in you at the last minute. Now, again, please understand, I've had that happen many times. I mean, I've got the message completely done and I may be lying in bed on Saturday night and suddenly the spirit of God will bring thoughts to me and implications of the text and maybe a a story that I can incorporate that illustrates some truth in the passage. That happens. But just because it was Saturday rather than Monday doesn't mean it's more holy or more helpful. So the Spirit of God is active in our lives 24-7. And I think we need to get away from this idea that somehow we're not being open and sensitive to the leading of the Spirit if we prepare in advance. Because I feel the presence of the Spirit on Monday and Tuesday just as much as I do on Friday and Saturday. Hey, welcome to the Expositors Collective Podcast, episode 217. I'm your host, Mike Neglia, and the voice that you just heard is that of our guest this week, Dr. Sam Storms. Now, Dr. Storms has been teaching God's Word for nearly 50 years, uh, both as a preacher, a pastor, and also as a seminary professor and lecturer. So in this conversation, we speak about openness to God the Holy Spirit, uh, both inviting His presence and His help in the preparation process in the week leading up to the Sunday morning sermon, and then also actively anticipating His presence during the preaching event. Uh, Essentially, we're talking about the gift of teaching and the gift of prophecy. So there's nobody that I'd rather speak to about these issues than Dr. Storms. Additionally, we also speak about what's it like to preach the Book of Romans four times all the way through, and also some tattoo suggestions from Sam Storms himself. So I know that you're going to enjoy this conversation, so I'm going to get out of your way in just a moment. Let me briefly invite you to check out the Expositors Collective private Facebook group. If you go to facebook.com slash groups slash Expositors Collective, there is a vibrant and growing community of Bible teachers and preachers who are discussing the episodes of this podcast, as well as just um, connected issues related to the tasks of personal study and public proclamation of God's word. All right, maybe see you there. And here's my conversation with Dr. Storms. Well, hey, welcome to the Expositors Collective Podcast. I'm very excited to be speaking with uh, Dr. Sam Storms. Uh, Dr. Storms, good morning and welcome to the Expositors Collective. It's good to be with you today. I've been looking forward to this. Oh boy, if, if if you've been looking forward to it half as much as I have, then <laughs> um, hey, so I've, you know, I've been listening to you and learning from you and reading from you for, for quite a long time. I'm going to try to not act like a total total fanboy, but I'm excited to have a chance to talk with you. Um, so the first question that we usually ask on this show is, um, uh, Dr. Storms, can you like take us back to the first sermon that you ever preached, first time you taught the Bible in public? <laughs> that was a long time ago. Uh, it was, I think, in about... Oh gosh, 19, 
1970 or 1971, so about 50 years ago. So if my memory isn't as sharp uh, as it should be, you'll understand why. Uh, I was, I think, a sophomore in uh, at the University of Oklahoma, and my home church, which was a Southern Baptist church, invited me back, and I preached on a Sunday night. And all I know is, and I, I think I still have the little cassette tape, if people remember what cassette tapes are, on which it was recorded. And I was just shocked at how fast I spoke. I think, you know, they wanted a 35, 40-minute sermon. I think I was done in 15 minutes just out of nervousness. But, uh, yeah, that was, that was really the launch uh, of my preaching ministry. Uh, it's been a long time since then. I don't know how many hundreds and hundreds of sermons I've done since then, but I do remember uh, that one particular night back in, in the early 1970s. Wow. So you, so you gave them 35 minutes worth of content. <laughs> in in 15 minutes. I did. But let's just be honest. The delivery was really bad. Uh, I don't know if anybody was affected or even was able to follow what I was saying. But uh, yeah, it was a good experience. Everybody has to start somewhere. And you can't start out preaching like Martin Lloyd-Jones or Charles Spurgeon. You have to be yourself. Yeah. Now, this was quite a long time ago, I know. But do you remember your passage? Do you remember your your theme? Nope, I have no recollection whatsoever. I think it's probably good that I've forgotten that. Okay, um, okay. Yeah, I, I don't think I want that memory lingering in my head. <laughs> okay, so so quickly moving on, uh, kind of a follow up question from there is like, well, how how have you grown uh, since then? It's been yeah forty plus years of ministry since. Um, I had, I think one of the first changes is your your cadence or your speed. Uh, but what are some other ways over these decades that you've grown or improved as a Bible teacher? Yeah, well, um, I had a rather unique experience and, and opportunity. When I went to theological seminary, most students in seminary don't have the opportunity to preach basically until well after they've graduated, and even sometimes years after that as they serve in some associate role. But in my first year of theological seminary, uh, I was invited by my kind of my theological father in the faith to go to a little church where he was going to be interim pastor, and he took me along with him to teach the adult Sunday school class. And after one semester at that, he stepped aside, and they asked me to become the interim pastor. So from um, this would have been, oh, my goodness, I'm trying to think here. This would have been in about 1973 or 1974. Um, so I had the opportunity all through my seminary years to preach every single Sunday. So I was, had the, the, the privilege of being able to kind of cut my teeth and learn uh, in, the, in the trenches, as it were, from a very early time in ministry. Um, I, uh, uh, I did that for about three and a half years at that church. Uh, and then I went and joined this individual, this man who was my theological mentor at his church and served there for many years preaching as well. But so I had the, I had a rather unique opportunity while I was learning about the nature of expository preaching in seminary. I was actually able to practice it on a weekly basis in this little church. Wow. So, so if I get this right, you were the interim pastor for the interim pastor. Uh, so two degrees <laughs> removed. Yeah. That's right. That's right. Yeah. It was a great privilege. Um, I hope I, I, I actually, dared to preach through Romans for the very first time in that little church. And I'm really? actually preaching, I'm actually preaching through Romans now, yeah. uh, just before I stepped down as lead pastor here at Bridgeway. 
Wow. Wow. And um, so I, if I, was it two or three years that you were doing it? Did you, did you get through Romans in that period of time? I did. I did. I, I preached it in much larger chunks. Okay. Um, that's my approach to expositional preaching now is I take smaller bites of scripture, if you will. Mm-hmm. Um, in fact, it's interesting. I, I drive by a very large church here in Oklahoma City almost on a daily basis, and their big sign out front shows that the uh, senior pastor is preaching through Romans, and it lists the text, and oftentimes he'll cover an entire chapter in one sermon. Okay. You know, sometimes I'm lucky to get through one verse, um, but um, yeah, I, I have learned over the years the importance of digging down deeply allowing the the actual structure of the text itself sometimes to dictate how much of it you preach. Because sometimes, um, you know, you're preaching through Romans, and you get to verse 8, verse 28 of chapter 8, the passage everybody knows. And um, I had, I, I built seven points out of that one passage and could barely squeeze it into one sermon. Um, there are other portions of the text, like uh, Romans 5, 12 to 21, which is about the first Adam, the last Adam, and original sin. And that's a more far-sweeping text that I'll uh, cover, you know, the entire paragraph in one message. So I really let the text dictate um, how much I cover, but I also let the theme and the focus of a particular passage dictate, because if it calls for much more, uh, going much more deeply into each word and the contextual setting of the text, I want to allow that to, to be the determinative factor in how much of it I preach. Do you think there's a point when a, a, a pericope or a section can be so, so small that it ceases to be expositional preaching? Yeah, certainly. Um, because you may be touching on a one particular theme, one particular idea that is found in that passage. And then you can expand out to broader passages in the Word of God uh, that that touch on the same theme, and the implications or the applications of that obviously would take you in a different direction. So yeah, um, I like to think about preaching a single verse, uh, a short paragraph, a larger section of Scripture. Um, and again, it all depends on what portion of the Bible you're in. If you're mm. in the Old Testament, mm. if you're in narrative or historical literature, you're going to cover a much larger portion of the Word than if you're preaching through Romans verse by verse. Uh, so it all depends on the nature of the literature, the genre, the place and redemptive history of the text. You preach through the book of Acts. You don't want to go just one verse at a time. You need to preach the story as it is pre- presented in Acts, for example, um, as over against trying to nail down one particular phrase and spend an entire hour on that. Right, right. Okay, and so here's the uh, another question that comes to mind as you talk about um, preaching Romans back then and then preaching Romans now. Have you used your earlier notes as a reference point or as a resource for your, your current series? Well, the interesting thing is um, I've preached through Romans, I think, four times. Oh, this okay. The, this is the fourth <laughs> time that I've done it. Okay. All in all in different churches. <laughs> um, <laughs> I was thinking that lucky church. <laughs> yeah. Um, and I think the first time the notes that I produced, um, I dispensed with them. The second time and the third time, I kept them. Mm-hmm. And I, um, again, this is this is my idiosyncrasy. I manuscript all my sermons. I write them out in full. Um, and 
I can tell you a brief little story about how that happened. Um, a man by the name of John Gerstner, who's now with the Lord, was uh, one of the most prominent 20th century scholars in the study of Jonathan Edwards, the great Puritan pastor of the 18th century. And we were having lunch, and he asked me whether I manuscripted my sermons. I said, well, not really. I just kind of have a general outline. And he said, well, where would you be today if Jonathan Edwards hadn't manuscripted his? I said, point taken. So from that point on, I've always written them out in full. And so I do have now uh, all of the manuscripted notes that I last time I preached Romans, which was probably back in the late 1980s. And I use them, but I don't rely upon them because there have been so many good resources that have uh, been released since then. Plus, my own personal theological development um, has called on an expansion of what I might have done 20 or 30 years ago. So uh, I don't think the text changes, but certainly my capacity to understand it and and explain it has grown over the years. Yeah. So there's is there any kind of um, like cringeworthy stuff in 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 your preaching through Romans that you recall that you're you're glad to amend? I mean, I know that there's been kind of a, a theological journey that you've gone on uh, over these past decades. Um, is there anything that you recall from like an earlier sermon that now you've made amends for or you've corrected? <laughs> uh, that's maybe too strong of a word. Oh, but yeah, I, know, I understand what you're saying. Um, probably um, my eschatology. Okay. Because I was a, I was trained at Dallas Theological Seminary, which is a dispensational, pre-tribulational, pre-millennial school. I think hey, that's hey, kind of, nothing that's, wrong with that. <laughs> yeah, I, I understand. That's where, okay. that's where Calvary Chapel lands on sure. that issue. And so that affected, for example, how I preach Romans 11. And my approach to it now is slightly different. So, yeah, that that has undergone a considerable uh, transformation. Um, I don't think, you know, the, Romans chapter 7, which is perhaps the most challenging passage in the book, uh, uh, who is Paul talking about there when he describes the struggle with sin? I think I've flip-flopped several times on whether he's talking about himself, pre-conversion, as a converted believer, as a struggling believer or a mature believer, I've gone back and forth uh, on that particular issue many times. So, yeah, the text remains the same. My capacity to understand it probably develops over time. Okay. And I think, yeah, it wouldn't be a good Sam Storms uh, interview if there wasn't a, a reference to uh, eschatology. So thank you for that. And um, But so now I'd like to maybe pivot or switch from there into uh, your, your most recently published book, uh, 12 things, a dozen things that God has done with your sin. Um, maybe this question connecting it with preaching, it's like, like, it, do you think it's important for us in this like supposedly enlightened age of 2022 to stand in front of our congregations and to talk to them about, about sin, like that antiquated idea of yeah. sin? Yeah. And in fact, before I answer that, uh, this is an important point that I hope younger pastors and preachers will listen to. This book came out of one sermon. Uh, many years ago, I think probably 10 years ago, I preached one sermon called A Dozen Things God Did With Your Sin. And so I had 12 points in the message, and it's all of the, the images, the metaphors, the analogies that we find in Scripture about what God did with our sin. And then during the COVID shutdown, I thought, you know, this would make for a really good book. So I went back and I took each of those 12 points and expanded it into a separate chapter in the book. So, uh, you know, I people oftentimes ask me, how do I write books? Most of my books come out of my having preached on that particular subject. 
And so um, I would encourage young pastors. That's why I say you should manuscript your messages, write them out in full. You don't necessarily, I certainly don't want you standing in the pulpit reading from it, but it's always helpful to have. And then when you go back five, 10 years later, it's already there. And that can become the seed form of something that might develop into a really good book. Now, getting back to your question, um, why talk about sin in our world? Precisely because of the nature of our world, which has basically lost any sense of first, the holiness of God, and secondly, the greatest threat to our souls, which is the guilt of our sin. And so I'm dealing on a regular basis, as I'm sure you and other pastors are, with people who basically are crippled and paralyzed spiritually and emotionally because of this lingering weight of shame and condemnation. And they can't shake free from this feeling of having of being disqualified and being disgusting in the sight of God. And so they wake up in the, every morning feeling defiled and dirty in their conscience. And the, the, it just kind of ruins their, it, it robs them of joy. It robs them of peace. It uh, hinders their service in the body of Christ. And so the book was designed to say, look, folks, you need to stop obsessing with your sinning and fixate on what God has done with your sinning. And he has, and of course, as the book lays out, he's laid it upon his son. He's forgiven it. He's cleansed us from it. He's blotted it out. He's trampled it underfoot. He's cast it into the depths of the sea. He's removed it as far as the east is from the west. So really what I'm trying to do is to say, look, folks, we, we have to realize the word of God is clear. Sin is a reality. God is infinitely holy. He's also loving and kind and gracious and long-suffering. And look at what he has done in and through Jesus Christ to deal with your sin so that you can live in freedom, that you can feel the affection that God has for you. Uh, so that's really the, the focus of the book. It is, it is on the one hand theological because it's very rooted in Scripture, but it's very accessible. It's written for just the average adult um, Christian, and it's primarily designed just to awaken in your heart the realization, the, the liberating realization that all your guilt and all the condemnation that you once deserved has been taken upon Jesus and therefore removed from you. And you can live now in the freedom of knowing that you're forgiven. Yeah. Yeah. And, and um, you talk about how, yeah, sin, it, it brings the shame and, and it kills the joy. Uh, I, I think reading through, yeah, that book and the truths that it contains is like, these are ways to, to get your joy back. Uh, this is ways to, to grant people like confidence to, to live, uh, you know, before the face of God um, in, in the midst of this world. And so I, I loved it. As I, as I finished it, I thought, okay, who do I want to give this to? Um, who's who's going to get this copy? Um, it's, it's marked up. And then here's, here's another thought about that book. I, I brought it with me to a coffee shop and I sat down and I, I read the forward and um, read the forward. And then I read the table of contents and I read the table of contents and like, I started crying. Um, I, I um, not, not sobbing, weep, you know, but like, but it, it really got me just reading about how, yeah, my sins are trampled under his feet. They are, they are behind his back. And I, I didn't even get to, to page one, uh, but just the table of contents, just the reminder of this, this cluster of wonderful truths um, really uh, impacted me. 
I'm, I guess I'm, yeah, maybe just keenly aware of my sin and failing. I'm, I'm of that kind of temperament that really notices those types of things a lot. And so um, while, while the book was great, even, even just the table of contents is, it's worth buying it for the table of contents uh, alone, alone. You're the first person who said that. So I think I may quote you on that. I said, yeah, folks get the book and just look at the table of contents. That's yeah. Made, nuts. made Mike Neglia cry. <laughs> um, the table of contents was great. The content was great. Um, before, before we move on, I want to yeah, talk to you. Uh, you mentioned, um, two tattoos that you are thinking of getting and <laughs> Dr. Storms, I want to encourage you to get those tattoos. Well, um, yeah, people can't see us, but I can see your tattoos. So, uh, yeah, um, I was, and I talk about this text in the book, Hebrews seven twenty five, yeah, where it says that Jesus always lived to make intercession for us to the uttermost. And so those words, I preached an entire message on those two words, always and uttermost. And I told the people, if I was ever going to get a tattoo, I would put one of them on one forearm and one another word on the other and hold them up. Uttermost and always is a constant reminder of what Jesus is doing, interceding for us at the right hand of the Father. Uh, still haven't gotten the tattoos, but... okay. Uh, I no. think you should. I think I'm, you on, should. I'm on record as suggesting it. <laughs> well, I might take you. I have I have some room, so I might take you up on that. Um, okay, so so back to kind of our main our main focus. So what what is the so if if this book came out of one sermon, um, I, I guess that kind of moves us along to like, well, what does your sermon preparation process uh, look like? What are the the kind of um, the rhythms that produce you know that one sermon and then also every other sermon. Um, so I know that you're on the cusp of retirement, but like before you go, like what does that, that weekly Sunday after Sunday rhythm look like for you? Sure. Well, what I'm going to say is not necessarily advice to younger pastors because the way I do things now is different from how I did them early on in ministry. Okay. Early on in ministry, um, I spent probably um, 14 to 20 hours a week preparing a message. I, I would immerse myself in the original text. I would do all the exegetical uh, spade work, as it were. I would read uh, the best commentaries that were available, uh, outline the passage, you know, put it together in a manuscript form, you know, come Friday or Saturday, and even Sunday morning, I would get alone and actually preach through the message uh, privately, uh, whether I did it aloud or just in my mind. Things have changed over the years. Uh, having done this now for almost 50 years, um, it's I don't need to do the extensive research and reading that I used to. So, for example, in preaching through Romans, Every time I would preach through Romans, I would get the most recent commentaries, and I would add them and incorporate whatever insights they had into the messages that I had already produced in years past. Well, now, uh, here I am um, at this time, and I think probably there have been four or five really good commentaries that have come out since then. So instead of working through 15 or 20 commentaries, I'm just looking at four or five. And my preparation now, I'm a little bit different from many. I prepare my sermons at the beginning of the week. I start on Monday morning. I typically have my message completely done by Wednesday morning. And the reason I do that is because then the message is in my mind and my heart, and I'm reflecting on it. I'm thinking about it Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday. Um, applications, illustrations are coming to mind that I probably hadn't thought about earlier in the week. I just like to kind of 
um, kind of saturate myself in what I have already prepared and pray about it, think about it, process it with my wife. And preparing early on in the week allows me to do that. I know that there are some, and Spurgeon was a classic example, who might wait till Saturday night. Now, Spurgeon was unique. I don't think anybody could follow his practice. But a lot of pastors will wait till Thursday, Friday, Saturday to prepare their messages. I don't. And part of it also is a little bit of fear. I think, what happens if I get sick on Friday and I only recover Saturday night and then I'm not prepared on for Sunday? But uh, maybe that's just a little old age anxiety. But I like to have everything done earlier in the week. So I come right out of a Sunday service, Monday morning. I don't take Mondays off. I jump right back into the text of scripture and start working on the preparation for it for the coming week. Yeah, I've heard you say elsewhere that there's kind of this um, this notion that the the closer that we get to Sunday, the more active the Holy Spirit is, and that there is like something holier about Saturday night or something holier about early Sunday morning that um, we don't have access to until the clock is ticking. And <laughs> yeah. I, I and I've, I really appreciate even the way that you phrase that that. Yeah, there's nothing unspiritual about starting early. And in, in fact, it's, it's a way to prepare an offering to, to give to the Lord and to his people. Yeah, I, I've heard some people say that it just feels more spiritual and more uh, if you wait and let the spirit kind of spontaneously move in you at the last minute. Now, again, please understand, I've had that happen many times. I mean, I've got the message completely done and I may be lying in bed on Saturday night. Um, and suddenly the spirit of God will bring thoughts to me and implications of the text and maybe a, an, a story that I can incorporate that illustrates some truth in the passage. That happens. But just because it was Saturday rather than Monday doesn't mean it's more holy or more helpful. So the spirit of God is active in our lives 24-7. And I think we need to get away from this idea that somehow we're not being open and sensitive to the leading of the spirit if we prepare in advance, because I feel the presence of the Spirit on Monday and Tuesday just as much as I do on Friday and Saturday. So, yeah, I, I, I know that there are some who it just doesn't feel as if they, they like the notion of spontaneity and the Spirit breaking in at the last minute. Um, and that's fine because the, the Spirit can do that. But He can also move spontaneously and break into our thought processes on Monday or Tuesday or Wednesday as well. And and how how do you interact with God the Spirit um, on Monday and Tuesday? So like the the the, the stereotype anyway, or the, the caricature of the, um, the the preacher who is seeking after the Spirit. Um, I, I don't imagine that preacher going to the theological library and and finding out what are the latest commentaries on Romans. What's the best? Um, what, what's the newest advances in Roman studies? Now that's a caricature and you're, you're proving that wrong, but as you are reading the latest commentaries, what, what role does the spirit play in that research? Yeah. And again, um, I would caution any pastor or preacher from becoming overly reliant on commentaries. Okay. You need to dig into the text yourself. You need to study it, meditate on it, think about it. Um, before you, um, before you actually dig into what others have said about it. But again, you know, the these commentaries are expressions of the spiritual gift of teaching. And if the gift of teaching is valid, then certainly we as pastors need to be taught by those who have that gift. So we should never denigrate the importance 
of their insights, but but at the same time, we should never become overly dependent upon them. Um, so my approach, you know, there are two texts of scripture um, that um, really three texts of scripture that really weigh heavily on me when I think about the role of the spirit in sermon prep and in preaching. There's Psalm 119, verse 18, where the psalmist prays, open my eyes that I might behold wonderful things in your word. That's a constant prayer. I pray that prayer before every sermon in the pulpit. The people of our church are tired, probably tired of me saying that. I say, folks, let's let's pray Psalm 119, 18 together. And then, of course, there's uh, Ephesians 1, 15 and following, where Paul talks about uh, the Spirit of God, um, the Spirit of wisdom and revelation, giving enlightenment to our hearts that we might know the hope of our calling. And then I think of uh, 2 Timothy 2, 7, where Paul said to Timothy, think over what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. I, it's interesting. Both sides of that verse have to be emphasized. There are some people who say, hey, I just want God to give me the understanding. I just want this download from the Spirit of God. And they bypass thinking. And then there are others who do all the thinking, but they don't depend on the Spirit to give understanding. And Paul says it's very clear. Think, apply your mind, examine, explore, study what is being said, because if you do that, the Spirit of God will give you understanding in the text. So that's very much uh, a part of my approach and my, and again, I just say, Holy Spirit, just at any point where I am, uh, and I pray this regularly, if any point that I am in danger of misleading your people, of uh, speaking error that might be damaging to their Christian lives, bring that to my awareness, bring conviction, somehow by some means alert me to that so I can um, be careful not to misuse my gift of teaching to mislead people. Yeah, and to be gifted as a teacher or or even just in the natural realm uh, as a good communicator, it's it's risky if we have the the ability to say things convincingly, winsomely, um, and, and yet to not have the proper doctrine, the proper understanding. Um, to to mislead people is, I guess, always a a possibility. And and so I think the hard work of us making sure that we have the right things to say is valuable. Oh yes, absolutely. And again, I would I I would just say this as well, since we're talking about sermon prep and what my my actual rhythm is. Early on in my uh, pastoral ministry, I learned the incredible value of studying good preachers. And that wasn't so much reading their books, it was watching them preach. And there were two or three individuals that actually were, one of them was my theological mentor, and I sat under his ministry for years. And then there were a couple of actual uh, guys on TV whose, t- whose services were, um, you know, um, released on television, and I would sit there and watch and listen, and I would look at how they approached the text, and I would look at how they structured their sermons and how they made transitions from one paragraph or sentence into another and how they incorporated illustrations. Um, and I learned immensely from their gifting. Uh, it's not, the, now I'm not saying for a moment that I imitated them. That's, I don't think we should try to imitate anybody. We have to be true to who God has made us. But I learned a lot of important things about how to communicate effectively by watching and studying those who communicate effectively. And sometimes you can't just do that by reading the book. You have to actually sit in their presence, watch them online, and study the way in which they deliver sermons. 
Okay. So when I pictured, yeah, a younger you watching preachers on television, like you're not studying their mannerisms or their, their, their style, but, but noting, ah, he effortlessly transitioned from, from this point to that point, or he, he posed a question here and then showed how the Bible gives the answer there. Uh, And those are the things that you're taking note of. Yeah. But I'm also, let me just say one thing about that. I do take note of the mistakes they make. Oh, (laughs) in other words, there are, there are preachers who have certain phrases or little sayings that they interject all through their message that are very annoying and distracting. There are mannerisms that you say, you know, I wish you would stop doing that. I could, I could listen to you and watch you a lot more successfully if you just wouldn't do that. You can learn from their, their bad habits and their mistakes. Uh, We all have them. And I think it's important to observe not only how they do it well, but how they do it poorly. And we can learn from that. Yeah. I love how you, yeah, you said you study good preachers, but then even good preachers make mistakes. And that's encouraging for all of us who are aspiring towards, um, yes, yeah, serving the Lord through teaching and preaching. I got a, um, a really nice, um, long email from a friend of mine who was um, uh, at a church where I was preaching uh, just last Sunday. And it was like very thoughtful critique. Um, it was, you know, largely positive. And then at the end, actually, it was <laughs> it was like 12 good things and then three bad things. So maybe similar to to your your book. Um, but he highlighted these positive things and and then he gave some critiques. And he, he said one of them, like, you have your keys, they're jangling. Um, as you kind of move around, your, your keys are kind of clipped to your belt. And he's like, you're not driving anywhere. You're not um, entering a house. You don't need those keys there. And it just is distracting. And for me, I'm used to having the keys there, but what's what's the point? I don't need them when I'm on the platform and with a microphone. And then some other smaller things like that, some little little quirks that don't need to be there. And I'm glad that they're unloaded. And then from this Sunday onwards, I won't have my keys clipped to my belt loop anymore. Yeah, um, I've taught preaching classes many times over the years to young men. And one of the things I talk about is uh, most young preachers have no idea what to do with their hands. And so some of them stick them both in the pocket. Some of them grab the pulpit on both sides. Um, some, some of them stick their hands behind their back. And then you watch preachers whose hand gestures have no relation to what they've just said. So they'll make some emphatic hand gesture that has that is utterly contrary to the tone of the text that they're speaking about at the time. It's because they don't know what to do with their hands. And so just watching those who do it well. And again, we're not, we're not, I'm not suggesting this because we're trying to be professional communicators and we're trying to, you know, have people just uh, overwhelmed with our oratorical skills and our presence in the pulpit. We're trying to do the best we can to make it easier for people to hear the Bible, to make it easier for people to, to pay attention to what God is saying to us in the word. Uh, and I'll just mention this. Some people will know who I'm talking about, but I'm not going to mention his name. There's one preacher who's been preaching for 50 years, recently retired. And in about every third sentence, he would say, listen, listen. And I found myself every time saying, I'm listening. Stop <laughs> telling me to listen. And the point was, he was trying to say, I'm getting ready to say something very important. And the problem is, if you say that every single time, it loses punch. It loses its force. Um, so we need to watch if we have those little mannerisms, those little phrases that make it difficult for people to hear. I, I don't want people to walk away from a sermon that I've preached saying, wow, that was an impressive presence in the pulpit. Uh, 
or boy, I sure love the tone of his voice or his articulate and precisely grammatical way of expressing truth. I want them to walk away saying, isn't God great? His word to me today is so powerful. Who was that was preaching? Oh, hmm. oh yeah, I think I forgot his name. Hmm. But the force hmm. of the text is resonating in their hearts because I've been diligent to deliver in the best and the most effective way I can. Yeah. Amen. Amen. Uh, that's, that's excellent. You, you mentioned that you want people to walk away saying, wasn't, you know, God's word to us today was, was so powerful. And uh, yeah, that's connecting you, you spoke about the spirit's role in our preparation and then maybe to pivot to talk about the spirit's role in our delivery uh, with maybe that, like that today-ness of, of preaching the word. Um, you spoke about the spiritual gift of teaching and then can I ask about like the, the gift of prophecy and its overlap or its connection between um, the spiritual gift of teaching or the act of, let's say, even a Sunday sermon, even an expository sermon um, going through a passage. But then simultaneously, I, I know that that you long to be open for that kind of momentary um, prophetic utterance, perhaps that could come through that. So I just would love to hear your, your thoughts on expository teaching and um, the gift of prophecy. Sure. Yeah, I, um, I'm i not particularly prophetically gifted. Uh, God's used me in that way, uh, oh, a dozen or 15 times over the years. But um, one of the things that I am always conscious of is in the midst of my message, there might be just a prompting from the Spirit that I, don't, I can't explain anywhere else. Where did that come from? It just came out of the blue. Why am I thinking that right now? And I incorporate that into the message and then find out later how incredibly impactful it was on individuals in the church. Um, oftentimes, at least in my experience, I can prophesy when I'm preaching without knowing that I am. It just comes as a part of the, of, of the delivery of the message. Um, you don't have to necessarily know that you're prophesying in order to do so. Um, so especially when you're preaching. Because, you know, you shouldn't stop saying, oh, let me stop right now. Spirit of God just told me something to tell you. And that's manipulative. It's self-serving. But you can very seamlessly incorporate into the flow of your message what you feel the Spirit of God is laying on your heart at that time. Many times, uh, and this happens not every week, but it happens fairly regularly. I'll be preaching along, and then suddenly there will come into my mind an implication of a text that I had not considered before. And I will stop and say, you know, folks, it just kind of dawned on me that you could perhaps misunderstand what Paul is saying here or what uh, Isaiah is, is intending. And it just seems to me we need to pause and, and, and explore this in a little bit more detail. That can be the result of the Spirit of God working in your heart and alerting you to things that you need to avoid saying or the things that you need to say that you unfortunately were going to omit. So again, um, there are others who, and I'm not particularly a, a, a fan of this, who basically think preaching is entirely prophetic. And so they don't do any preparation at all. I mean, literally they say, no, I, I don't, I'm not going to study in advance. That's quenching the spirit. No, it's not. And they say, I'm going to walk into the pulpit with an open Bible and just trust the spirit of God to lead me. Now, have there been occasions when I can have done that? Well, yeah, but it's, it's maybe once a year. Um, I'm not. I'm not gifted enough to do that. But I think we need to get away from this idea that somehow it's more godly, it's more holy, it's more spiritual, to 
to walk into the pulpit with a blank slate and just let the spirit move you to say what he wants you to say as over against being carefully prepared. That's a dangerous mindset to have. It's not more godly. It's not more spiritual. Can it happen? Can the spirit do that with you? Sure. But I think if you try to do that week in, week out, your people are going to really go hungry and leave without being fed the word of God in depth. Yeah. Yeah. And you mentioned that sometimes, you know, the, the prophetic gift would come through un, unbeknownst to you. Um, and then certainly I'm sure you'd agree. Also that prophetic gift might be Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, as you're writing the manuscript. Oh, absolutely. Um, that certain things are brought to your mind, maybe from Gordon Fee's writings, or maybe from, you know, Frederick Bruner or something um, that prompts something, or maybe it's just something else. And that is that appropriate moment. Uh, the Sunday, the Sunday preaching is the appropriate time for that to come out and to hit people's lives. Sure. In fact, I've had this happen on several occasions where I didn't even know that I was adding something that I had not prepared to say. And it just kind of comes in the normal flow of delivery. And then after the service, some, some person will come and say, I can't believe you said that at this particular point, because I was dealing with that very issue and I needed to hear that explanation that's really encouraged me. And I thought, well, praise God. I, I had no idea you were go- experiencing that. I had no yeah. idea you had that need. The Spirit of God did. And I'm grateful that he awakened me to that, even if I wasn't conscious of the fact that I was saying what you specifically needed to hear. Yeah. Yeah, the Lord is so kind to, to use us and to, to help us throughout the way to, to serve his people and to be to be used by him. Um, well, I'm aware of the time. And just to ask the, the final question, um, so you've mentioned that you've been preaching for almost 50 years. Um, so this question is like, are you trying to get better or, or have you arrived or what, what would you like to, how would you like to improve even in this current decade of preaching ministry? Oh, I, I, I hope I get better every week. I hope I'm, I'm clearer. I hope I'm more uh, personally engaged with the people and more sensitive to where they are and what their struggles are. So, I mean, even when I step down in August of this year, I'm going to continue preaching. I've got invitations that, and I'm accepting them and I'll continue to write. So I hope that I don't coast. I don't, I don't really believe in retirement. I believe in repositioning myself to do, to do ministry in another context. So I don't think, I think any preacher who thinks he's arrived is arrogant and uh, needs to repent of that because uh, we are always growing. Uh, there are still things that I do. I mean, I, I do not like to watch myself preach when I go back and look at a video, but when I can force myself to do it, I think, oh, Sam, that was dumb. You you, you really were confusing there. And why did you, 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 the way in which you delivered that and the tone in which you spoke it is not helpful to people. So I hope I'm con- constantly learning constantly improving, constantly being a more effective communicator of God's word. And I hope that never ends. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, you, you mentioned those preachers who think they've arrived. Well, you know, don't worry. They don't listen to this podcast <laughs> um, because we're, we're people who want to be growing and improving, you know, that, that, you know, our, our tagline is, you know, to help you grow in your personal study and public proclamation of God's word. Um, we're all people who want to learn to grow. But then also you mentioned preachers, who don't prepare at all, like they don't listen to the podcast either. <laughs> so don't worry about hurting their feelings. Um, I wish they did listen to it and they would yeah. be awakened to what they need to do. Um, yeah. Well, they're, they're in their own, their own circle. 
well, I appreciate that. Here's the, here's the, well, I said last question. This is a follow-up tiny little question. I've just, you know, I've, I've read a lot of your sermon manuscripts. So I, I appreciate that they're there and, you know, on samstorms.com, you could, can, can read them. Actually um, .org, not .com. Oh, thank yeah. you for that correction. I'll yeah, make sure that the show notes. Samstorms.org. <laughs> Um, there is like, there is such like a, a precision in, in your language, like as a, as a writer and then as a, as a speaker, um, I have noticed with, with yourself and then also with, um, uh, Ray Ortland, you guys are so good at using words that everybody knows, but that we don't use very often. So I never have to reach for a dictionary to understand any of the words, um, that, that you're saying, but it's as often like, Oh, I wouldn't have put it that way. Ah, oh, that's so, that's so nice. So essentially this may be as a silly question to end on, but like, what kind of books do you read or how do you have a vocabulary that is um, so accessible, but yet striking in that the words that you use, it's like, Oh, Whoa, I never thought of it that way. Well, a couple of things. One is that um, the man that I mentioned earlier, my, my theological mentor is a man by the name of S Lewis Johnson. He died in 2004 um, he was the professor of New Testament and theology at Dallas Seminary for nearly 30 years. My first week of seminary, he called me into his office, and he offered to be my mentor. He said uh, he was from South Carolina. He had this southern drawl. He said, Samuel, he said, I'd like to offer my services to you. And I said, yes. And one of the things he said was, he said, I'm going to, he said, if you really invite me to and authorize me to speak into your life, he said, I'm going to talk to you about your grammar. And I thought, good for you. So, I mean, every time I would make a grammatical mistake, he would correct me. Um, grammar has gone down the tubes in our world, and people are very sloppy. Uh, they don't like grammatical rules. And yet you're sitting there saying to me, there's something about the way you communicate and the words you speak that are especially helpful. And I think a lot of it has to do with the fact that I love good grammar. I love the way sentences are structured, the way that uh, language functions. And I attribute a lot of that to my mentor who over the years never hesitated to say, Samuel, that's incorrect grammar. Here's how it should be said. And then the fact that when you read books, pay attention to sentence structure, pay attention to vocabulary, pay attention to how authors use synonyms. One of the things that you'll see in bad writers is that they use the same words two and three times in the same sentence instead of employing synonyms. Um, so you need to read well. And as you read, don't just read for content, read for the way in which the content is expressed and take note of that. So I maybe it's just me. Maybe it's just my own uh, personal um, orientation and personality, but I love uh, I love words. I love grammar. I love sentence structure. And then, of course, honestly, um, and, and I know this can't be the case with everyone today. Um, I, I've taken, you know, I took six years of formal training in Greek and Latin. And Greek and Latin are such so closely um, uh, aligned in terms of uh, sentence structure. And um, that has helped me tremendously just in terms of knowing how to communicate carefully with words that I think will be helpful to people. So those are just some thoughts. Wow. Well, well, thank you. And, and, and I have begun actually taking notes. I always carry a little notebook around with me and the back page is just a list of like interesting words that I've heard. <laughs>
deflate, husk, hubris, fickle, glib, prescient, tenacity, compelling. It's just like, oh, these are words. And, and so I'm, I'm trying, I'm trying. Are those all from me or did you No, get those no, they're not. No. <laughs> this is just, I've had this notebook since, uh, this is going to be a two week old notebook. These are just a list of interesting words that I've heard in the past two weeks. So I'm working on it. When I read a book, if I come across a word that I don't recognize and I'm saying, why did you use it in that way? I'll stop. And I have right here, you can't see it, but on my desk, the concise Oxford English Dictionary. Mm-hmm. And I'll look it up and I'll study its history. And I'll think, all right, how can I incorporate that? Not to impress people like, oh, isn't he smart? No. Yeah. How can I communicate better the truth of God in ways that will be life-changing and transformative? Yeah. Well, you're, you're stewarding your gift well. And, uh, and may we all um, have mentors in our lives that correct our grammar, <laughs> or perhaps most importantly, um, you know, that, that encourage us to use whatever gifts that we have and whatever, whatever department the Lord has, has placed us in. Uh, so Sam, yeah, thank you so much for your time. This has been a, a joy. And, um, as I always say, I hope that this podcast and all that we do at the Expositors Collective helps you to grow in your personal study and your public proclamation of God's word. Well, thank you for having me. I enjoyed it. All right. Well, thank you so much, uh, Dr. Storms, for your time in this conversation. I really enjoyed it. And thanks to you, the listener of the podcast. Thanks for making it all the way to the end. Make sure that you check out the show notes uh, because there you'll find a link to samstorms.org, not .com, .org, as well as a link to the book, A Dozen Things That God Has Done With Your Sins and Three Things That He Will Never Do, published by Crossway. So those links are available for you there in the show notes, as well as to other connected or related previous episodes of the Expositors Collective podcast. Um, There's an interview with Adam Narciso talking about the role of prayer and spontaneity combined with diligent study. There's also an interview with Brian Broderson about the value of having notes sometimes and not having notes others. And so there's a a wealth, a storehouse of previous content that's available. Well, hey, those are the episodes of the past. And now I'm going to leave you with a preview of what's to come. Here is some audio that we recorded earlier this year in Costa Mesa, California at our most recent training event that we put on. Uh, Our first speaker was Tim Chaddock. Tim has a powerful and stirring word about the value and the importance of expository preaching. I'm going to leave you with a short preview clip here, but make sure that you're subscribed so that next Tuesday, it automatically is delivered to your device. All right. I hope that this podcast and all that we do at the Expositors Collective helps you to grow in your personal study and public proclamation of God's word. In short, we should let the text control our sermons, not our sermons controlling the text, right? We've all been there. You've got this brilliant idea, like, I'm going to preach on this, and I'm going to use this passage for it. But as you study, you're like, oh, it doesn't really, doesn't really fit. I'm going to make it fit. You know, I'm going to force it in there because I'm going to preach on this topic. Oh, so many great, in my opinion, sermons just went into the bin because they didn't quite, my idea didn't quite match the text. 
I remember meeting with a friend. He was part of a very different tradition for me. He was becoming kind of widely known as this circuit preacher. And I asked him how he was preparing when I was meeting with him um, on this one occasion. I said, oh, what are you going to preach on this Sunday? Well, he said, I was just praying and I was just reading Matthew and Jesus, you know, he, before he preached the Sermon on the Mount, it said he went up to the mountain. I was like, that's it. We're going higher. That's going to be my sermon. We're going higher. And so he continued to preach what had actually nothing to do with the Sermon on the Mount. And I was like, yeah, I don't, I, don't, I don't know if that's what the text means. It's important that we not have our sermons control the text, but allow the text to control the sermon. And this actually brings about confidence, which leads to the third value. Expository preaching reveals true authority. I love Paul's letter to the Thessalonian church when he says, hey, when I preached to you, I'm glad because you received the word, the preaching, not as a human word, but the word of God, which is what it is. Expository preaching reveals true authority. Through expository preaching, we're essentially communicating that we ourselves are not the authority on all these matters. Rather, Scripture is the authority. The authority is not so much my view or opinion, but I'm hopefully pointing people to wrestle with the text itself. Otherwise, people can just say, well, that's your opinion. And they can kind of, you know, remove themselves from accountability or conviction. The Bible is the authority. And as we're submitting to expository preaching, we're showing that to be so. And because the Bible is the authority, and not me, and not you, that produces, it's very counterintuitive, it produces incredible boldness and authority in your preaching. Like, I don't know about you, but I don't get excited on a Sunday or whenever it is you're going to go to preach. Like, oh man, I've got this killer story. <laughs> like, I want them to meet with God. And the only way that, I don't know about you, but I'm not naturally a courageous person. I'm very timid by nature. But it's only as I'm like wrestling with the text, I'm like, this is awesome that I like forget myself and I just get excited for them to meet with God in the text. Thank you.